Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Kayla McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first Moses Nagel brings us Albany Common Council wrap-up from October 2nd and 3rd. Then Elizabeth E.P. Press profiles Aaron Vera, who is running for Troy City Council District Number 4. Later on, Bria Barthel was at the Troy Public Library for Banned Books Weeks and brings us the titles of some commonly banned books. After that, K.P. Holler gets the scoop on the Barnes' upcoming Fusion Anti-Gala that has Friday the 13th theme. Finally, we speak with Petra Cuppers, who is coming to Troy this week. She'll be giving two interactive events based in movement at the Sanctuary on Thursday, October 12th, starting at 5 p.m. But, fear, but first, here are your headlines. The Times Union reports that Albany County Executive Dan McCoy's proposed 2024 county budget Monday would host would boost his salary and that of the county comptroller and sheriff by 12%. The raise is larger than the ones uh, countywide elected officials have typically um, have typically because it will be the only one they receive for the next four years. The proposed budget raises about $100 million in taxes, the same as the prior two years, though the tax rate would slightly decline. The budget also includes $6 million for the county's initiative related to green energy and $250,000 for the Albany County Land Bank. The New York City Liberty Union has filed a petition asking a judge to order the Senate police to disclose the name of troopers and investigators in a disciplinary act or case that involves misconduct complaints that the agency determined was unstable. Unsubstantiated. Unsubstantiated. Many police agencies across the state were continuing to block the disclosures of open or unfounded complaints against officers despite a new law in 2020 allowing access. Rensselaer Street in Troy's north-central neighborhood has been converted from a one-way to a two-way street effective immediately. The Saratoga Springs police officers suspended without pay following a May 16th pepper spraying incident has resigned from the department. Officer Nathan Baker pepper sprayed Adam Rupikia of Troy after pulling him over because Rupikia has made obscene gestures, flipping the middle finger at Baker. The Timesine reports that after studying the issue for the past 12 years, Schenectady schools recently instituted a new grading policy for students rooted in equity and establishing uniformity for how students across the district grade students. The changes seek to ensure that the grade of that the grade a student receives uh, more accurately reflects their knowledge of the subject matter while ensuring that they are not punished for behavioral or attendance problems or other issues that may adversely impact their learning. Albany County is seeking bids to redevelop its government offices site in Albany's South End neighborhood where agencies like the Department of Health and Board Elections are located. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390.
Our first report is from Moses Nagel about two meetings at the Albany Common Council and the community response to two specific items discussed at those meetings. Last week, the Albany Common Council held two meetings which drew interest from many residents concerned about homeless people in the city. On October 2nd, at the regular meeting, a large group of people attended to oppose a resolution urging Albany residents not to give money to panhandlers. In this clip, during the pre-meeting time, you can hear them singing before entering the meeting. Okay, moving on. Uh, new agenda. Uh, I, will not, I, I won't have uh, meeting minutes, uh, so we, we won't, won't do that. And excuse me, let me roll back a little bit. Today is October, it's, it's Monday, October 2nd. Uh, Once the official meeting began, council member Flynn, who had proposed the resolution, surprised the group. I move that resolution 8082-23R be taken out of order and moved to the top of the agenda. Can I get a second? All those in favor, voice vote aye. Aye. Okay. Motion passes. Thank you. I'd like to um, take 8082-23R and withdraw from the agenda tonight so that we can uh, move on. So other people know that I'm withdrawing the resolution. Um, I want to thank you all for coming down here tonight. All the emails we received, for and against, but um, hopefully we can move on from this. Thank you. Can, uh, all right. So, Mr. Flynn, you were drawing it from the agenda, or yes, we are. I'm drawing from the agenda. Just for tonight, or or for I'm withdrawing it from the agenda. Correct me if I'm wrong. You are withdrawing it, not holding it. That is correct. Understood. Thank you very much, Councilmember. No, it's removed for good. It's removed from the agenda. It's removed from the agenda for good, okay? The process will have to start all over for it to happen again. Despite the resolution being withdrawn, many still wanted to speak about it during the public comment period, including Mayor Kathy Sheehan, who was there in favor of the resolution. Good evening. Thank you for um, allowing me to speak before you tonight. I want to talk about the fact that the pain and suffering that we are seeing in our community, on our streets, day in and day out, demands a compassionate response. There are those who want us to simply arrest our way out of the challenges that we are seeing. And I firmly believe that we need to help people, not punish them. I am, was the mayor of one of the first cities in the country to adopt law enforcement assisted diversion. I was the first mayor in the state of New York to sign good cause eviction protections. I announced a first of its kind treatment partnership with Albany County that will bring care where it is needed on our streets when it is needed, not in some bureaucratic office that is only open from nine to five. We are hiring social workers to be available 24 seven within our police stations to help those who are encountering mental health crises. So why do I say all that? Because there are advocates here tonight who would dare to suggest that recommending and urging our residents to support the organizations that are helping those in need, rather than giving money directly to panhandlers, is criminalizing poverty and demonstrates a lack of willingness on my part to address homelessness and help people. As I said, we've committed millions of dollars in funding. 
for housing advocates to suggest that the city of Albany should set aside this recommendation and simply build more housing is a slap in the face to our residents and our businesses. More than 60% of the property in this city is not taxable. We are home to the poorest census tracts in the region. More than 60% of our residents are renters. To suggest that they pay more in the form of higher taxes, which means higher rents, is a slap in the face. A single mom in Arbor Hill deserves to be able to take her child to the park without finding needles in the park. So I urge us to work together to find solutions. Thank you. Joe Pepperoni, a coordinator of the New York State Poor People's Campaign. You'll not be surprised to know that I'm opposed to the resolution and I thank you for withdrawing it. I also want to respond to the mayor. Nobody, absolutely nobody, is saying the status quo is okay. Let's say we're all trying to come up with solutions. <laughs> Let's at least acknowledge that we're trying. This situation is complicated. There's no simple solution. But this resolution punches down. That's what it does. It assumes so much about the folks who are seeking money. Nobody's got evidence. No one's bringing forth, oh, well, if you give somebody money, they're not going to spend it on food. They're going to spend it on drugs. They're going to spend it on whatever. Right? Like, there's no evidence of that. It's just anecdotes and what we feel like. And the challenge for us all is to look past the surface, right? When people are frustrated at these things, let's get to the root causes of these problems. I think we can do that together. There are real solutions on the table that we could move forward. And I know the city is constrained. You all can't do everything, right? But as has also been noted, the call's coming from inside the house, y'all. The mayor is not funding the ETBA, right? The vacancy study. It's the mayor. Let's punch up. Let's go after the folks who have the power here, rather than the poor folks on the street who are struggling to get by. Pat Fahey has not signed on to good cause eviction. Her constituents are facing 100% rent increases so that some corporation out of New Jersey can evict them all and, raise, and jack up the rents. Like, that ain't right. Where's the resolution about that from the city council? Where is the resolution that says Albany's going to be the city that ends homelessness? Right? People keep saying, this is just a resolution. It's just a resolution. Well, then let's shoot big. Let's, let's imagine a city that doesn't have these problems, that goes to the root of this. Because I know you all care about the right stuff. I know you're not villains trying to punish poor people. And I think that's something that we could all come together on. But this resolution ain't it. So let's set this one aside. Thank you again for withdrawing it. Let's talk about the real root causes of these problems and real solutions that will address this crisis and actually help people and make it a stronger city for all. The next day, October 3rd, the Public Safety Committee discussed an ordinance that proposed changes to the city's loitering law. And the purpose of this legislation is to permit enforcement of Albany's loitering laws when there is recorded evidence that a suspect has been a violation of the law. You know, there's been recent rise in crime that's left our residents in the city of Albany feeling powerless. Loitering individuals can be harmful to not just themselves, but also to the local businesses, deterring prospective customers, particularly when those individuals are engaging in criminal activity. Another change that's going to be done with this legislation is that if there is also a sworn statement by uh, whether there's the business owner or individuals saying that this person has committed a crime. Housing advocate Canyon Ryan. 
what, what this does is it fuels vigilantism and deputizes small elites and business owners to start cramping down on low-income folks that are hanging outside um, or relieving themselves in some alleyway. And I expect, just like yesterday, we will bring another 40 to 60 people out to speak when there's a real vote on this because I find it really uncomfortable that you can withdraw a resolution but then support an ordinance that can jail people for being poor, for being unhoused, for sitting on a stoop for too long. A fine of $250 or jailing for 15 days, in any event, it's unfair, and I do encourage you to read that packet and find a better solution. Chair of the Public Safety Committee, Councilmember Hoey, defended the ordinance. This law is already on the books sitting on a stoop, loitering, it's already here. I want to make sure you understand, the people out here understand what we're talking about. We're talking about public urination, which is already on the books, you can be fined for, okay? That's already there. We're just putting it in this loitering thing to make it more apparent, trying to wake people up. The lack of restrooms, it is disgusting. I was downtown and I couldn't, nobody would let me use their bathroom. I know what it's like. But that's a different subject. Many people, like resident Julian Mastachetti, saw in the law an excuse to further criminalize poor and homeless people. Yesterday, people across Albany voiced their opposition to a resolution of a similar spirit to this ordinance, designed with a punitive outlook towards working class people in our community, particularly those who are lacking housing. This ordinance is significantly worse than that, in fact, as it is punitive in fact and not only in spirit. I call on this committee to reject this ordinance in its entirety, as the people of this city certainly rejected ourselves. Please vote no on Ordinance 5.21.23. The committee voted unanimously to move the ordinance forward. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. And that was Moses Nago reporting on the two meetings of the Albany Common Council meeting. We will keep on this topic. For further updates, go to our website, mediasanctuary.org. Hudson Mohawk Magazine covers the election. Election Watch is that series. And in this uh, interview, uh, EP Press covers the Troy City Council District 4 with Democrat Aaron Vera, a civil engineer. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we continue our coverage of the city council candidates, and we're talking with Aaron Vera, a candidate for District 4 Troy City Council. Aaron, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Aaron, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your work, and how you decided to run for Troy City Council District 4. Sure. Well, I've lived in the city since 2009. I served on the planning commission, um, and then I most recently served as the city engineer until December of uh, last year. Uh, I live in the city with my wife and two kids. Uh, my son is seven, daughter's five. Um, and I own uh, my own engineering firm, um, which has been operating since 2017. Uh, I decided to run for city council because I was asked by a few others. There was, uh, you know, obviously some trouble finding candidates to run. Um, after my time as city engineer, I still wanted to be involved in the city. And so I uh, appreciate the opportunity to run in D4. Great. Now, there isn't currently a city engineer. Is that true? 
Uh, that is true. At the time I was, uh, I was appointed to that position uh, shortly after COVID. I believe it was June of 2020. Uh, there hadn't been a city engineer since, I think, 2017. Um, and then when I left in December of uh, 22, for the last, what is this, nine months, there hasn't been a city engineer, no. That is just one position within Troy government that isn't filled. There's many other empty seats. Do you know why? And can you just talk a little bit about the effects of having so many empty positions in our government? You know, my time being there in City Hall, the vacancies weren't weren't as bad as they've they've now become uh, nine months, ten months later. There's a number of department head positions that are that remain unfilled. I think uh, there's probably a couple of reasons why that that might be. The salaries that the city offers. Uh, may not be competitive with with other areas, and then you know the city of Troy has a lot of challenges. The work that is demanded of you can be more challenging than in other municipalities. I imagine that's sort of part of the reasons why you also left during that time. I was still running my um, my private firm business on that side picked up, and so it became difficult to juggle both positions. And you know during that time, I I was not serving as a city engineer full time. It was a part time temp position as stated on the uh, the budgets. So um, I do think the city needs to fund a full-time city engineer, and I'm hopeful that the administration will add that position um, in this year's budget for whomever the next mayor may be. Do you think that the city council has much sway in terms of the administration filling out some of these positions? Or um, like sort of how does that relationship work? Like if you were to become district four city council person, how would you work toward helping fill some of those positions? Yeah, it is sort of an indirect influence, right? What I would hope to do, um, should I find myself on the council, would be to signal to the administration that we would be open to increasing salaries if, if the next mayor brought us a budget that uh, created new positions or provided additional funding for positions that, that we should have, you know, that would be something we're, we're looking for. Um, but ultimately, yes, it's the administration's decision to, uh, to craft their budget and, and bring that to us. So. Thanks, Aaron, for going into that a little bit for yeah. us here. So you're running for District 4. Not everyone knows the lines. The lines have been redrawn. Can you tell us uh, what area of Troy you would cover for District 4 representation? Sure. Yeah, there's a redistricting that had been had been completed. So this election, there's some some changes to those districts. Uh, District four now runs from the canal, Poston Kill, north to Husick Street, and then it's you know between the Hudson and 10th Street, uh, Prospect Park area, so hillside there. So you have a lot of downtown. You have some neighborhoods, including my neighborhood. What are some some things you've been seeing as you've been campaigning that are important to your constituents in uh, District 4? I'd like to see some continued investment in, in our parks, in our infrastructure. I think we need to find a way to address particularly sidewalks in the area. A, a lot of our sidewalks are in disrepair, and, and it makes it difficult to, to navigate downtown, get around parts of downtown. And then I think um, we would need to uh, continue with our lead service line replacements. That's obviously a pretty big public health issue. You know, the current administration has a plan to do that. I think they're looking at seven to 10 years for total replacement. And I'd like to see uh, the next city council work on getting the public more educated on the issue and possibly finding some temporary solutions like filters or, or something like that to 
um, again, to just improve our drinking water quality. Aaron, I've heard you uh, also talk about issues besides drinking water and fully staffing our city hall. I've heard you talking about affordable housing or safe and affordable housing. There was yet another hearing for the Harbor Point Gardens. I know that wouldn't be in your district, but you know when we start to think about the housing market and housing uh, landscape here in Troy, what do you mean when you say phrases like safe and affordable housing? Well, as far as the safe housing goes, I think we need to invest more heavily in our code enforcement department we have a number of vacant structures throughout the city. We've seen recently some of those structures collapse um, or um, you know, be, be hotspots for um, criminal activity, things of that nature. So focusing on, on code enforcement and, and getting those properties and holding those landlords accountable for those properties would be the, the, the safe side of that. As far as affordable housing goes, I mean, rents have been going up. You know, so we could be talking about capital A affordable housing for lower income individuals or lower a, <laughs> lowercase a affordable housing. And, and that would just mean creating additional units. If we increase the supply of housing, uh, we would hope to see rents come down some degree. Uh, there's a lot of new housing projects going in in the downtown area. Um, so we'll have to see what effect those have. But uh, I think a continued focus on having um, good quality housing for our residents is, is key. Now, your district is, as we just said, covers downtown Troy. Um, pretty organized in downtown Troy is the is the bid. What is the relationship between the bid and sort of the work you would do? Yeah, so I've I've attended a few of the the, the bid meetings. Um, you know, their focus tends to be more on the obviously the businesses of downtown Troy. Um, I would hope to have to continue you know having a working relationship with them. Um, their, their concerns are similar to concerns that residents would have, um, you know, relating to uh, infrastructure and safety in downtown. Um, so, yeah, again, I just hope to continue working with them and, and see what we, can, uh, what we can do. And to revisit your safe housing, um, there's been some talk about residential occupancy permits. Is that something that you would be pushing for? Is that something that ties into code enforcement being able to do their job better? Or what do you mean when you say code, like hoping code enforcement is able to help us create safe housing? Well, so as far as the residential occupancy permit, I I would hope to, uh, to work with the next administration on that. I think there's a few unanswered questions about how something like that would happen. And of course, if we have an overworked code department right now, uh, we may need to address that side of things before we, we create additional work. But code enforcement, you know, their, their, their job is to go into structures and, and perform inspections and um, cite landlords for unsafe conditions, uh, work with landlords to address those concerns. Um, and so, you know, again, going back to vacancies, we, we don't currently have a director of code enforcement. Um, we didn't have one in my time as the city engineer, and I don't think we've had one for, for quite a while before that. Um, so it would be getting some, some fresh faces into that department and um, providing that department with the tools they need to, to go out and complete these inspections and, um, again, hold landlords accountable. Speaking of properties in downtown Troy, uh, the news this week is that 
uh, David Bryce is selling many of his properties in downtown Troy, something that total Times Union reported $25 million worth of properties, you know, either as a big chunk or can section them off to different people. Pie in the sky, do you have visions for some of those places? Like the atrium is on the list. The market block books is on the list. There's, there's many sort of historic buildings on that list. I was surprised to see uh, that that hit the news. I think that, you know, Bryce has, you know, most recently approached the planning commission in the city with a few developments in mind. It seems that, you know, he might have run into some financing issues getting those projects off the ground. You know, I mean, I think it's an opportunity to, again, bring in some some new ideas, uh, some new development to, to the downtown area, I would hope. That's done in a uh, respectful manner. Um, I'd love to see some additional housing. You know, maybe there's a possibility that uh, the city could uh, procure some of that land and and possibly build a, a new city hall. As you may know, we we currently rent city hall, um, and I think that uh, a city our size deserves to have uh, our own space for those operations. Why should folks who live in District Four vote Aaron Vera in the next election? Well, I'd hope that I, I bring to the city council uh, some amount of experience and knowledge about city operations. I, I look forward to listening to constituents, hearing about the issues, and, and, and working um, together with the new administration and whomever the, uh, the other council members are to, uh, to make Troy a better place. Great. Aaron Vera, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. All of our candidate profiles are assembled on our website. On one page, search for Election Watch 2023 on mediasanctuary.org. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Basilahiki. And I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Many of the books getting banned across the country are common titles that you may have read. Bria Barthel went to the Troy Public Library to bring us some banned book titles and what makes them so contentious. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and the American Library Association has declared the week of October 1st through 7th Banned Books Week. Certainly in this political climate, we should be very aware of the calls to ban books. Talking with me today is Carol Roberts, head of Young People Services at Troy Public Library. She picked a couple of these banned books to talk about and to talk about the phenomenon a little bit. Carol, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Bria. Good to see you, too. Can you give us just a little background on book banning and on what Banned Books Week is all about? Well, it's about celebrating our freedom to read and... First of all, we're a library, and libraries aren't in the practice of banning books. The other thing is we want to highlight books that have been banned and call into question why that is and to have people think about what it means to have intellectual freedom. And also that includes 
not violating children's right to learn and have access to information and ideas. And you've selected just a few of the books in your banned books display that have a variety of reasons why people call for them to be banned. So let's hear a little bit about the books you picked. The first book is called A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo. This is a story of a gay rabbit who lives near the White House. And I love the cover illustration because obviously it's after Marlon Brando. It's a you know take on his name. And you can see the dark shadows around uh, the bunny's eyes. It looks like Brando might if he were in fact a rabbit. When you said it's not the White House, like in Washington, D.C., it's a White House. Well, actually, it is the White House, but he also has a White House, so a little confusion there. But anyway, it's about two gay rabbits, particularly Marlon, and it's also poking fun at the former vice president. Um, what was his name? <laughs> it escapes me. Pence? Yes, thank you. Yeah, so he sort of figures in there as a stink bug who wants to spoil things because he says that two, two male bunnies can't get married. So the main concern about the book is that it's representing a gay lifestyle? Yes. Yes, and there's also a gay wedding that takes place. And that seems to be a theme that the LGBTQIA-related books are often the ones that people call to ban. That's true. A lot of them have to do with lifestyle choices and also sexuality. Okay, so that one again is Marlon Bundo, B-U-N-D-O. And next? The next book is called It's So Amazing, a book about eggs, sperm, birth, babies, and families. And this was written by Roby Harris and Michael Emberley. And this is like a nonfiction picture book for kids age 7 and up. It's got wonderful, colorful illustrations about um, how their bodies develop, and it compares boys to girls, what's the same and what's different. It explains how sex happens. It talks about secondary sex characteristics and basically all that a child would need to know as they're growing to figure out what's going on with their own bodies. And it looks like there's a bird and a bee, as in birds and bees, talking through some of the top. Yes. It's sort of like a comic book, in a sense, but also... You have these guys uh, making comments along the way. So you've got, you know, the, the bird and the bee, obviously representing the birds and the bees. So it's cute, but it's also informative. And some of the titles are very funny, like uh, for women's parts, what's inside, what's outside. And the one for uh, sperm and egg meat, the big race. Yeah, it's humorous. And I think it, it really engages children, which is what you want any book to do. Any good book will do that. And so it doesn't leave a lot up to their imagination. It just explains things in a clear and kind of humorous manner. You know, you have things like how long till it's a baby. It talks about pregnancy, and you can see what a, a child looks like inside their mother's womb. I think it's a great book. But of course, you know, it's also it's a book that explains sexuality, and it's been banned for being a book that explains sexuality. And it might also be because it's multicultural. The cover alone has many different skin tones and facial characteristics showing in the kids surrounding a, a pregnant woman. Yes, that's funny because I didn't even notice that when I looked at it. 
I just thought about what I'd understood, which was the sexual connotation. But again, you know, children have a right to be informed. And I understand and would defend a parent's right to choose what's appropriate for their child. What I don't condone is people making decisions for other people's children. Well said. And another book? Speak by Lori Hall Sanderson. This is a book about a survival, a survivor of sexual assault who just stops speaking due to the trauma that she's gone through. And this is a book about her being able to come to terms with it. Just doesn't speak at all. Yes, she was sexually assaulted. And the boy who did this to her, she still encounters. This is about her coming to terms with it. And that's really important for people that have gone through the experience of being assaulted. It lets them know that they're not alone. And, um, you know, books like this are so important. But again, you know, they get banned because they deal with, you know, sexual violence or even just so many books, just anything to do, if there's any kind of sexual anything in the stories, um, there's people that feel that they should be banned. So really, um, I feel like it's about coming to terms with people's fear. And the next one. The Witches by Roald Dahl. This is one of my favorite books. In fact, we're going to be showing The Witches later this month here at the library. So it was made into a movie? It was back in the early 1990s. I think 1990, in fact. So we'll be showing that later this month. But this was banned for witchcraft and for misogynistic themes. I guess because a witch um, is female, they felt that it was, it was anti-woman. Well, some portrayal of witches have been very clearly against old women, especially. Right, which I understand. But again, um, that's part of our, it's part of our culture, and um, it's a mix. Um, so you can, you know, take the good with the bad and keep what you choose. And I think, as you said, that's an important part, is personal choice. Yes. As libraries, we just try to guarantee access for everybody. But again, it comes back to parents. They have to take an active role in what their children choose to read. It's not up to the library to police their children. Okay, and then the final one? Uh, The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. This was a great book. Obviously, it was a number one uh, bestseller. It's about two high school students who are both um, fighting cancer, and uh, they meet at a support group and form a relationship, and they do, in fact, have a sexual encounter. And so that is why I believe this book was banned, um, primarily. And having read the book, um, it's pretty mild in comparison to so many things. Um, that are that are available um, to people just just on television or in any other area. So that was banned for that, but it's as I said, it's very mild. Okay, and that is Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian at Troy Public Library. Uh, there's a wonderful display of some of the many other books that people have called for banning in the children's room when you come in the main door on the right of the main library. And the main library is located at? 100 Second Street in downtown Troy. And the website for more information? thetroylibrary.org.
Okay, we usually hear about all the activities going on, and there are quite a few, but we're going to do that in a separate piece. I wanted this one to focus on banned books. Carol, thank you so much. Thank you, Bria. That is an interesting and very complex uh, topic. And if any of our listeners have uh, any opinions about banned books or want to highlight some banned books that they have been reading and enjoy, we'd love to have that tagged on Instagram or Facebook. Um, always good to hear from our listeners. Albany Barnes Executive Director Casey Polamain checks in with HMM producer K.P. Holler to discuss their 12th annual Fusion Anti-Gala, a Friday the 13th themed fundraiser showcasing the work of Albany and Schenectady-based artists. This is K.P. Holler reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today, I have with me Executive Director of Albany Barn, Casey Polamain, here to talk about their annual Fusion Anti-Gala. Welcome, Casey. Hi, K.P. Thank you for having me. Yes, welcome back to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So I want to talk about the Fusion Anti-Gala. This is Albany Barn's kind of signature annual event. But first... I want to give our listeners a quick background on what is Albany Barn, if they're not familiar. Absolutely. Okay, so Albany Barn is a creative arts incubator. Uh, we offer safe and supportive spaces and services to artists. So that can look like a lot of different things. Um, we have private work studios. We have shared maker spaces. We have a performance space. We have exhibition space. Um, and they're all, you know, really affordable to use. So artists at any point in their journey can come to the barn and work with us, utilize our spaces and work with our staff for professional development support, whether that is they've always wanted to teach a class but don't know how to start, or they want to become a muralist and they need to kind of understand the process of how to translate their smaller paintings to a larger wall. Any of that kind of help um, we are we are here to offer to artists of the Capital Region. So it sounds like Albany Barn spends most of the year underwriting artists' projects whether that be with affordable work or living space or facilitating connections or programs that can advance an artist's career. So then the Fusion Anti-Gala, is that the one time a year that the barn is reaching out and asking folks to support the organization to make this underwriting of artists' work possible throughout the year? And can you tell me how it became known as an anti-gala? What does that mean? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's we we call it an anti-gala. Um, so it you know it kind of serves a lot of the same purposes as as typical galas do, where you know it's kind of this big um, cumulative event that is geared towards raising funds for the organization. But we lean into that anti of anti-gala a little bit because um, you know we really want to create just a really fun, accessible, welcoming party where folks that um, live or work in our space or, you know, community members or community organizations that we work with or, you know, sponsors, no matter kind of who you are, or how you know the barn, this is a, a space that everyone can come together and, um, and celebrate all that we've accomplished in the last year. And so what does that look like? Um, how do the artists who live and work at the barn contribute to this event? And what can people expect to see? 
So every year is a little bit different, but the core of the event is always the same. Um, and that is to highlight the the artists that live and work in the building. And that can look like a couple different things. Typically, we have open studios. So those work studios that I mentioned, um, all of those artists are in their spaces, doors open, work spread out everywhere. So you can come and go in those spaces and talk to the artists, get to see them actually working, get to see their pieces and really hear directly from them how they fit into the bigger picture of the barn and how the barn has been able to unlock certain opportunities from them for them. So, you know, there's that. There's also a lot of interactive art elements that we hire our artists to assist with. So we, um, you know, this year is is Friday the 13th themed, which I can talk about in a little bit. But we've hired um, someone who does tarot cards. Um, we have folks doing fun kind of temporary tattoos. We have a DJ, we have a live sculptor. And those are all people that are in artists that are in our orbit that we um, want to highlight and provide, you know, paid opportunities to because that's really what we're about to is, is getting, um, getting paid opportunities to our artists. So there's tons of different art throughout the entire building and folks can just mix and mingle and wander around and chat with artists and participate in the interactive things as much or as little as they'd like. So I'm familiar with Fusion and have attended and used to work at Albany Barn and have a part in putting the event together. And one of the things that I think is a distinguishing feature is this event is really by and for artists. And so, so many different creatives pitch in. Can you tell us a little bit about who is, you know, kind of making Fusion happen this year and how uh, the process is of putting this, you know, really accessible uh, and inclusive anti-gala together? Absolutely. So um, Fusion happened to fall on Friday the 13th this year. So once our staff realized that that's how the date lined up, we all just were like, well, we absolutely just have to lean into that for the theme. So Friday the 13th and all things spooky is the theme for this year's event. And as soon as we got that down and started to spread the word that that was the theme, people got very excited. And it it resonates with a lot of our artists and then they get ideas and they bring those to us and then we help shape them and then they turn into something really great and then everyone will be able to experience them. So it's a really collaborative experience in, in working on this event and putting things together. We also have um, a mask exhibition so you know friday the 13th you kind of think of a, a particular horror movie and i had thought you know we should we should get some blank masks um and get them out to artists and then they can artists can do whatever they want with them and my staff one of my staff members eric who's a whiz in our wood shop in schenectady said i actually think i can make those masks so eric worked really hard to use scrap wood to make these really amazing curved kind of hockey masks and then those went out into 10 artists hands um, painters and sculptors and and collage artists and we just said take this mask do whatever you want with it make sure it gets back to us by fusion so we'll have all of those masks on display so friday the 13th is it a costume event or is it just a how how do people come dressed to this event this is a great question, and it's probably the one that I get asked 
the most as we lead into the event. So fusion has always been, um, you know, come in whatever makes you feel comfortable. So if that's your casual clothes, great, please come in. If you want to wear a gown, awesome. We'd love to see it. So for this particular fusion, um, you can lean into the costume element as much or as little as you want. So you can come in a full Halloween costume. You can come, you know, with no Halloween or kind of spooky elements, or you can do something in the middle. Maybe you wear a, a black dress with, you know, cool, like a cool crown or like fun spider web makeup, you know, anything like that, that helps you feel like your best self. Um, that's what we want. The only thing to keep in mind is we just want to make sure we can see your face. So if you're thinking about masks, just kind of keep that in mind. But otherwise, wear whatever makes you comfortable and happy. And so the event is Friday, October 13th um, at the Albany Barn at 56 Second Street in Albany. And are there still opportunities for people to get involved? Yes. Uh, one of the things that we really um, hold as kind of an important pillar of the event is that it's created by and for artists and community members. And we keep it, we want to make sure that it is as accessible as possible. So if you want to attend, um, but you know, need a kind of a little bit more accessible way to do so you can come and volunteer with us we have tons of different jobs and we're always in need of some support that way so you can volunteer for you know the first half of the night and then enjoy the party the second half of the night um you can, we're always here to talk through ways of how you can get involved and how you can attend the event kind of no matter where you're coming from we want everyone to feel welcome and just to be able to come and have a great time. So please reach out to the barn if you would like to volunteer or get involved in some way. We'd, we'd love to have you. And for folks who may want more information on the event, where can they find that, Casey? The best spot is going to be our website, which is albanybarn.org slash fusion. But we're also on Facebook and Instagram, you know, kind of all the regular social media channels. So um, website's best, but you can find us in all kinds of places. This is KP Holler, and we have been speaking with Casey Polamine from the Albany Barn. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Hope to see you at Fusion. That sounds like a really fun event. Thanks so much for KP for profiling that Fusion event coming to the barn. This Thursday, join us for two events with Petra Cuppers to experience this the Sanctuary's campus in complete new way through movement. She'll take visitors on a literary journey alongside the Sanctuary's eco-art trail and later for a dream workshop performance engaging our body-mind spirits. Petra Kopas is a disability culture activist and a community performance artist who's coming to Troy for two events. First, she will give an artist lecture at MPAC on October 11th, and then on October 12th, she will come to the sanctuary to connect with the community. Petra Kopas joins me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me, Sina. It's lovely to be here. And it's lovely to have you pronounce my name in a real German way. I adore that. <laughs> I take all kinds of pronunciations of my names, but this is lovely to hear. <laughs> Wonderful. It's so great to talk to you. 
That one sentence barely does you justice. So could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Hello there. So I am a German person who lives right now in in Michigan on Three Fires Confederacy um, land in a little Rust Belt town called Ypsilanti. And I am indeed a disability culture activist and I am a community performance artist. These are my two core identities. So I work with other people in the disability community. I myself am disabled. I'm also a cis queer white woman and I love bringing people together to create art. And I'm very much looking forward to doing that in Troy next week. We produce full schedule starting at MPAC and then two events at the sanctuary. What can we expect? And um, what are you thinking will take place in Troy? Let's begin with what's taking place on Wednesday at MPAC. Lovely. So on Wednesday at MPAC, I will be sharing with people the first cut, the early cut, it's not quite finished, the first cut of the Cripmat Archive Dances. This is a project I've been engaged in since uh, 2021. It started with a residency at the New York Public Library and the dance archives there. And I was looking for disabled presences, disabled and mad presences in the archive. I'm not really a historian though, so I'm, I'm in the stacks for a little bit. I'm finding material, but then I go outside and I invite my fellow disabled friends, dancers and choreographers to join me outside the archive to, to engage in these embodied transmissions. So I'm bringing out gestures and we dance these together. And I hope to do something very similar to that uh, on Wednesday in Troy as well. I will be sharing with you community media clips from people who identify as disabled and or as mad and in which they share through movement, something about the experiences. And we will take this in and think together about what it means to engage in embodied transmission. The idea of, of sharing experiences through movements, do you see dance as a form of communication? I do see dance as a form of communication. And I also see dance as a form of sharing energy and agency. So that's for me a very important aspect here is that we're moving away from the kind of memoir narrative of this is what happened to me. This is my story. This is how I came from beginning, middle, end, you know. And of course, most of these conditions that we have do not have an end. You know, we're living our lives as we move through. We're, we're improvising and, and shifting our, our way through our lives. So dance for me is a very beautiful metaphor and a beautiful concrete material way of thinking about the agency of disabled people. And then on Thursday, you'll be coming to the sanctuary as part of the NEA Our Town Sanctuary Eco Art Trail project. How does the wheelchair procession along the Sanctuary Eco Art Trail, followed by the dream performance and workshop, connect us to land and its histories and futures and support the Eco Art Trail's goal of connecting living Indigenous legacy with striving for more environmentally just futures? Thank you. So yeah, I'm very excited about this part of the of my visit because it is a complete improvisation. I have not been to this space yet. I'm a visitor. I'm the visitor who will ask for permission to enter this land and to be in engagement with this land. I am someone who flies in and flies out. And I come and I like to offer, if I am invited, 
the um, the invitation to explore with me what it means to be on this land as indigenous people, as settler people, uh, our different histories, our different connections to industry, to brownfield sites, to urban development, uh, to all the aspects that likely are part of this trail. So if you come to join us, uh, you will find yourself part of a procession that stops and engages in seven-minute dances, short seven-minute dances where people can move just with their hands or just with their eyebrows or even just incite themselves. So it's not like you have to now go out and fully dance and take pirouette through the street. Very few people who will be listening right now are probably likely to do that, but you know, if you want to, you're welcome to. But mo more, most of us, I imagine, will be just sensing our way on the street, sensing through the asphalt, sensing through the gravel, sensing down into the earth and gaining a sense of what might have been there. And we'll call on the, on the knowledge that is in the street with us at that point. I do not hold that knowledge. I have to ask local people as knowledge carriers to share that knowledge with me in improvisation. So on Thursday, there will be the Eco Art Trail wheelchair procession, then a community meal, and then the dream workshop performance. And this is developed from your Starship Somatics classes, a modality you developed during the lockdown of COVID. You write that, quote, Starship Somatics engage our body-mind-spirits as portals, as transmobiles that honor pasts and jet us towards speculative futures among the stars or deep in the earth in flux and transformation, end quote. What else can you tell us about Starship Somatics? Lovely, thank you. Yeah, this is one of these, my description of Starship Somatic is a little bit nebulous, isn't it? but you know, I hope it works. So we start this in, in March, 2020. So just as the pandemic began, everything shut down, right? None of us could go anywhere. And um, I really thought about, well, how can I create a somatic modality that is accessible to all people, that is accessible to people who are disabled, who have painful bodies, who are, you know, painful body, mind, spirits, who, uh, who cannot just go out and have a run in the neighborhood, you know? What else can we do to, to keep our tissues engaged creatively? And how can we use this screen as a way of doing that? So I started to run these sessions, which are usually about just under an hour long. And it's a dream journey. I take people on a journey. And when I run, when I do this, particularly in 2020, when we were in the lockdown phase of it all, usually half of my the screens in front of me, half of the Zoom screens had people who were in their tiny little apartments in Brooklyn or what have you, you know, like really small. And they were dancing full out from the bed to their dresser. You know, I could see them just like reaching across the Zoom square. And the other half of, of, the, um, of the Zoom squares showed people resting very peacefully and just going on this deep internal journey. No outward dancing visible at all. I could just see these deeply relaxed faces, these deeply relaxed human beautiful bodies lying there and at the end of the session when we come out we usually create a little communal poem uh, in which people share a little glimpse of what they've done and where they've been and I get to see and I get to hear that they've been on amazing planets you know I, when I take people on a journey I don't tell them what the planets look like it's your imagination that furnishes where we're going so these little glimpses of poetry are the only way that tells me about the intense experiences people have 
And they're delicious and beautiful. And remind us again and again of the, the deep creativity that we all hold and that we can activate, activate them through internal and external movement practices. And that's what Starship Somatics is about. We're journeying into the earth. We're journeying into the stars. But really what we're doing is we're journeying with our body, mind, spirit, imaginations. Mm, that's wonderful. You wrote on your website that your love of movement is pushing against the established definitions of what dancers can be. So can you talk about what these established definitions of dance are and how you are pushing against that? So established definitions of dance are not really that established anyway, right? Because dance is always shifting. Dance is always something different. But I imagine many of the people who are listening to us right now have an idea in their mind of when you say dance. It could be that they're imagining uh, a beautiful, rich African dance practice that's really grounding us into the earth. It could be that you're imagining right now uh, a European ballet practice of people like flying off into space in beautiful linear ways. So that these are some of the imaginations that people hold when they think about dance. I think very few of us think about dance as just this creative, tender shifting of bodies and minds together, you know, just being engaged creatively in the fact that we have a body. That is, for me, one of the core aspects of dancing, that we are in various ways, spiritually, physically, energetically, engaged in enjoying, moving, and being creative with the fact that we are material beings on this material world. So that somewhat minimal definition of dance is what, what I'm interested in, activating that very base material sense of enjoyment, agency, and creativity. Petra Kopas, we're very excited to welcome you to Troy, to MPAC on Wednesday, October 11th, and to the Sanctuary on Thursday, October 12th. Thank you, and I hope to see some of you on Wednesday and Thursday. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for this Thursday's event. Uh, I mean, oh. MPAC has been great in supporting this and bringing uh, Pietro Copas to Troy. Um, so there are two events. Five o'clock is the Eco Art Trail um, wheelchair procession from six to seven, community meal. And seven is the uh, dream workshop and performance. So we hope to see you there. Register, find more at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Captain Kalen McPherson, also your engineer for tonight. We want to thank you to all of our volunteers who made today's episodes possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley, segment producers Moses Nagel, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Bria Barthel, K.P. Holler, and of course your co-host, Sina Bazila-Hickey, and me, Kalen McPherson. Thank you for listening and supporting Grassroots Radio.